Warning, the following podcast, which contains strong language and mature content, is unsuitable for children or for the faint of heart. The subject matter discussed will be frightening and graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. When you want to hear about the paranormal, you get the spooked girls. True crime that makes you hypothermal with the three spooked girls. Stabby snippets will give you dreams. Taryn Jessica will make you. Along with the spooked girls Bring on the slaughter We on that haunted ground The three spooked girls Hey there, spooksters, and welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Jessica, and as always, I'm joined by my favorite gal pal, Tara. Hey, spooksters. Today we're going to be talking about something a little different. Well, actually, well, before we do that, <laughs> let me start this off by saying, Tara and I were like, I was brainstorming in the in the shower. Tara was not with me. I need to catch that. <laughs> I immediately no. then texted Tara this amazing <laughs> idea I had, <laughs> which was for the summer months, we should do something a little interesting. Mm-hmm. So we are now kicking off our series of serial killer summer. Woo! So if you are in it, all of our true crime main episodes this month are going to be serial killers. Yes. And if possibly, if we find haunts along the way that are serial-esque haunting type things, mm-hmm. we'll throw those in too. But it is, ser- it is officially our first Monday of serial killer summer. Woo! So strap in, guys. Also... Since it is the month of June and it is Pride Month, and you guys know that we here at Three Spooked Girls are allies and some of us belong to the community themselves, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we wanted to be able to do something that kind of represented our listeners. Mm -hmm. So this year, we made Pride merch. Yay! So we're really excited about that. If you want to check it out, it's in the show notes. Go look at it. It's I'm really excited about it. So, so cute. They're just, they are, and they're kind of simple. Like, they're our logo mm-hmm. with some pride stuff around it. It's nothing like, didn't go too crazy, <laughs> but I'm really excited about it. So, I hope you guys go check it out. And if you feel we have, and don't worry, we have stuff to represent both people in the community and then people who are allies, which are part of the community. Mm-hmm. But we want to be able to make sure that we are like including everyone. And if there's something I missed or you know, you're like, hey, I'd really like, like, I'm this and I'd really like it represented. Just send a, a DM to one of mm-hmm. the show's many social medias, which we have Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Mm-hmm. And we'll hook it up for you guys because we want everyone yeah. to feel represented and included. So, yes, yes, do it. With that, do that. Like I mentioned, we do have all the socials, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our handle is at 3 Girls. Also, if you want to hang out with us on a more personal, like more interactive way, when I say every time I say personal, I just think that somebody like knock on my door and be like, hey, let's hang out. Hi, Jessica. I would <laughs> I would immediately like start hyperventilating because that's social. <laughs> <laughs> when I have to talk to people, no, I don't like it. Well, 
And they found a way to find your home address, so. True. You know. That would be also <laughs> creepy. <laughs> I'm over here just internalizing big fears, and you're like, no, Jessica, that's committing crimes, like stalking. <laughs> <laughs> might be. Might be. It's okay. Anyway. It's okay. So, <laughs> with that, if you want to hang out with us and other spooksters, the Facebook group is the place to do it. It's at Three Spooked Girls, or it's Three Spooked Girls Official. You know, our mods have really gone in there and kind of like taken over. And I mean, there's book club. That's where we do our gift exchanges towards the end of the year. Our secret Satan, our secret Santa, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So if you are interested in that, definitely check it out. Again, that's Three Spooked Girls Official. If you want to help support the show, you can do so by heading over to patreon.com backslash Three Spooked Girls or hit it in the show notes where it says Patreon, and as little as a dollar gets you bonus episodes. We also have video content for five and up. If you would like an an episode dedicated to you, like you hear our patron select, that is our $10 and up tier. Just go ahead and check all that out. We have it. It's pretty Mm -hmm. easily laid out on the website Yeah, to figure out what you would like. And then perks go up from the dollar upwards. So Mm -hmm. yeah, if you want to go ahead and check that out. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so with that, I'm going to go ahead and, oh, I should tell you what we're going to be talking about today because I was like <laughs> earlier. Too excited. It's okay. I got really excited about other stuffs, Serial Killer Summer and then our Pride merch. But today mm-hmm. we're, we're going to be talking about a case that came to me by the way of Mindhunter. Mm-hmm. If you liked that show, we're going to be talking about the Atlanta Child Murderer, which if you've traveled with me or have told me that you were in the Atlanta airport, you hear me spew my fun fact about the fact that they didn't catch a murderer because they were building an international airport and didn't want bad press to mm-hmm. call in the feds. So mm-hmm. 30 children died, you know, <laughs> people in the 70s. What are you going to do? Mm-hmm. And not only did they delay that to build, to the delay catching someone to build an airport, but it is the weirdest, most confusing airport I've ever been to in my life. So it's like fail, fail, fail. So I'm going to hand it over to Tara and she's going to give us the background up until the arrest. And then I'm going to take over and then we will talk about it from that point on. Yeah. All yours, girlfriend. All right. So the person we are talking about, his name is Wayne Williams. Wayne was born on May 27th, 1958 in Atlanta, of course. His parents were Homer and Faye Williams. Very normal family. Both of his parents were teachers. His dad taught physics. Wayne was an only child. The Williams family was described as a really good family, a true Atlanta family, and they lived in Atlanta Dixie Hills. The Williams family was said to take pride in their home. It was a, quote, modest house in a modest neighborhood, well-kept with mowed lawns and manicured hedges. They were people who kept their house very well, end quote. Now, growing up, Wayne had an interest in CB radios. He liked to work on them and tinker on them with his dad in their basement. He was said not to really be into, like, kid games and stuff. They just keep calling him, like, the whole time when I was reading about his backstory, like a geeky entrepreneur. And his dad had bought him an electric train set and a bike. Along with that, he also got him a combination rifle and shotgun that they used when they would go on hunting trips. But according to his dad, Wayne, quote, Didn't kill very much, so he gave up on that. He was just like very into the electronic stuff and the radio stuff. 
And he did very well in school. He excelled in all of his classes. His teachers and peers referred to him as a virtual genius. And he graduated from Frederick Douglass High School in 1976, and he was said to be in the top 10% of his class and had an IQ of 118. Now, when looking into him, there isn't a lot on his childhood, but the big thing to emphasize is he came from a, quote, normal upbringing. It wasn't like any fucked up abuse, anything like that, like how there's these early signs, you know, with other serial killers we've done, like fucking how like Dahmer had all these fucking alarms ringing off and shit like that. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. just a normal family, a normal dude, whatevs. So his interest in radio, as he grew up, continued. He intensified on it and became very, like, fixated. He even set up his own radio station uh, at the family home. He lived with his parents, fun fact, up until I think it was like two or three days before he was arrested. He was also pretty young, too. He was in his early 20s. No spoilers, he gets arrested. He had done interviews with the then-Georgia state representative Tyrone Brooks, civil rights leader Julian Bond, and politician Ralph David Abernathy III. And the state rep Brooks had said, quote, We go into the radio station, and sure enough, he's got all of the equipment lined up. They said that they were just kind of like in awe of how professional he was. When he wasn't doing the radio thing, he was out on the streets. He would capture video footage of accidents and fires for local TV news stations and did freelance photography and all of that. And in an interview with a former anchor from WSB, her name is Monica Kaufman Pearson, she said, I knew Wayne Williams because he had been a freelance photographer for our station. That's how he saw himself as a crime reporter. And People on the police force would confirm this as well. There was Lou Archangeli, Archangeli, sorry, I'm not sure how to say that exactly. He worked for the Atlanta Police Department from 1974 to 2002. And he said that everybody knew Wayne and he was said to be the, quote, man who showed up at their scene and that he was often part of the landscape at crime scene. So it was like, it was a regular thing. He was always there, always around snapping pictures, taking video, like, you know, nothing like creepy. They're just like, oh, that's Wayne, pretty much. And other radio stations he also was frequenting was WIGO and WAOK. But this one was like a little fucking weird. So he had another endeavor, hobby, what have you. He said he wanted to be a music talent scout and make the next Jackson 5. Allegedly approaching kids saying he could make them the next Michael Jackson And he would tell them he was a record or music producer. Interesting. He had a fixation with children, as we will see. But on the flip side, by other people that knew him, he was described as fun, like a big brother. He would be one to tell corny jokes to try to, like, be cool. But he really wasn't. But people liked him. So they saw his little corny shit as endearing, essentially. But with all of his different little work endeavors that he's trying to do and be this entrepreneur, It would end up costing his parents a lot of money, so much so that they had to file for bankruptcy. And what's interesting about that is his parents did not have any bad blood about it. They were just like, well, we believed in him. We invested and it didn't work out. That's how shit goes sometimes. That's that's basically their attitude with that. And another thing to note was also kind of weird to me because it's like he's kind of one of those people who kind of comes off as like, I don't want to say necessarily chameleon, but he does come off in different ways to different people. One of the neighbors had said that the kids in the neighborhood 
thought that he was a policeman because he would speak and act like one, and even carried a badge with him. Interesting. Yes, saying, quote, Many of them thought he started acting crazy two to three years ago. This was like right after the arrest, basically. He would approach kids in official looking vehicles, telling them to get off the street or he would lock them up, end quote. And that neighbor stayed anonymous, but it was someone who had lived in the neighborhood for years. And apparently for those in the neighborhood and that immediate community, they didn't see him in as quite as a good light. They said Wayne was known to be a notorious liar and often fabricated stories that exaggerated his accomplishments. Interesting. It's really sad. Yes. And then also a couple, like, obviously I don't give a fuck because, hello, I'm gay, but it was rumored he was supposed to be gay. But of course, like the time period, you know, that is a big deal for that kind of thing. And of course, people talk, but it is what it is. It's not the point, but it's just something that came up sometimes. So, yeah. He kind of ran around town and did all of these different things, which is just interesting. Now, let's move on to how the fuck does he start getting tied into murders? Yes, he's a weird, corny older brother, but what the fuck happened, right? So, the Jessica mentioned, and she'll go into more detail. So, the, the actual child murders began in 1979. And what is insane is... Over the course of less than two years, there would be about 29 victims in all. That's Mm -hmm. a lot in a short period of time. So one of the first ones being was on July 21st of 1979, there was a 14-year-old boy who disappeared. And four days after that, another teen went missing. It would come to surface that they had been murdered. And all of these victims were young African-American children. And, of course, as these kids start getting taken and murdered left and right, it obviously is going to cause fear and tension in the community. Because, again, keep in mind, you know, this is like 70s and 80s. People had that false sense of security. It really was. Yes. Now, just like Jessica said, they did not have the FBI involvement at first. The FBI would involve themselves on this case on June 22nd, 1980. And this was after the abduction of a victim who was a seven-year-old girl. So there was, of course, the Atlanta Police Department and the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. They reached out to the FBI asking if the federal kidnapping statute had been violated. Now, none of these crimes appeared to fall under federal law, but there was a special agent named John Glover. And fun fact, this was the first African-American to lead an FBI field office. So that's cool. He offered, you know, to support them in this. Makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. And the Atlanta office helped follow up on out-of-state leads. And the lab obviously also provided assistance. And then the behavioral science unit sent an expert to develop a profile of this perpetrator. So while all of this is continuing, local politicians, the news media, and even the Senator Sam Nunn asked the Department of Justice to permit FBI involvement. And so the Attorney General did on November 6, 1980, authorizing a prelim investigation. And then on November 17th, the Bureau launched a major case investigation devoting more than two dozen agents and other personnel to the case full time. So they had a whole task force going on here. And so they focused on about a dozen or so disappearances that had shared traits, right? Makes sense. 
Things they found was that the victims were all young African-American males who vanished in broad daylight in fairly public locations, and their bodies were found in desolate areas. And there was no obvious motivation with their murders, in contrast to two other homicides from that period appeared to be gang-related. So all of these factors suggested a, you know, a serial killer. The case continued through the winter and into the spring of 1981. But by April, the killer began to change his behavior. And this is when bodies started showing up in the Chattahoochee River. So, of course, the task force took members from their team to stake out the 14 bridges in Atlanta in the metropolitan area that crossed the river and were waiting. And on May 22nd, there would be something that would be a big break in this case. So, of course, one of the surveillance groups that were out there, which had an FBI agent, an Atlanta police officer, and two police cadets. They stated that they heard a loud splash around 2.52 a.m. And one of the cadets, Bob Campbell, said in an interview, quote, I was really startled. It sounded like a body entering the water, end quote. And after the splash, they saw a white station wagon speed across the bridge, turn around in a parking lot on the other side, and then speed back across the bridge. Like, basically, like, flipped a bitch, went back. And of course, so they're like, what the fuck? So they go pursue this vehicle and stop it. And who was the driver? This was Wayne. So the FBI agent who was on this team that night, his name is Mike McComas. He said that Wayne had told them he was a talent scout and had been out in the middle of the night because he had an early morning appointment with a woman named Cheryl Johnson, stating, quote, he said, I'm out here trying to find her apartment and that just wasn't believable. Who goes out at three o'clock in the morning for an appointment four hours later just to ensure he's not late? It just didn't cut it with me, end quote. But even though they were like, this is a sketchy story, they had no probable cause or anything like that. So at this time, they there was no reason to hold Wayne or any arrest or anything. So they let him go. But when a body washed up, the body of Nathaniel Cater, two days later, they obviously were like, wait a minute. There was a vehicle after we heard the splash in this area, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, Wayne denied that he had nothing to do with this. He didn't throw anything off. He's been interviewed saying, quote, there was never any incident on the bridge. I never stopped on the bridge. I never threw anything off the bridge and nobody ever testified that I did, end quote. But not only had Wayne been discovered on the bridge that night, but they had this profile created, right? of the killer and suggested he might have had a previous history of impersonating a police officer, which Wayne did. He had been arrested for impersonating an officer. So there's that. And for that, he was brought into the station for questioning and was said to be given a polygraph test. And we all know before anybody jumps down my throat, we know, we know, we know, we know, but this is the fucking early 80s now. So of course they're going to do fucking polygraphs. But when they did the test, they indicated deception during questions directly related to whether or not he killed Cater. So there is that. But authorities didn't leave him alone. And obviously, he would be arrested. He was arrested on Father's Day, which was June 21st, 1981. And Wayne had stated, quote, everything stopped my world. Everything stopped at that point. I can't even describe how I felt, end quote. So, yeah stuff has hit the fan. So now he is in police custody. 
1981. And now I'm going to hand it over to Jessica. <laughs> okay, thank you. And I'm going to time <laughs> hop a little bit, guys. So just bear totally with me. Fine. Yeah, this one, like, you kind of have to go around. So that's fine. Like Tara mentioned, he was arrested on June 21st, 1981. And he was being charged with the murders of Nathaniel Cater and another man by with the last name of Payne. And I'm going to go over the victims in just a minute. Mm-hmm. So when they pulled him over that morning, right, which was just a few days before, it was like the beginning of June, when they pulled him over, he immediately was like, it has nothing to do with those boys. Which like That's an interesting thing to say. And it is. And it's an interesting thing because it wasn't like anyone questioned him. You know, they were on a police stakeout. There was a guy driving really slowly, very suspicious on a bridge. And it could have been a myriad of things. The guy could have been doing a drug deal. The guy could have maybe seen the police cars and be like, what the fuck? So they need to address it so that there's not someone loitering. There's a million reasons why they could have pulled him over. They could have thought he was intoxicated. It is three in the morning. Bars had just closed. Mm -hmm. Maybe this dude saw, like, maybe this dude was driving really slow to go home because he was intoxicated. Right. But they weren't even going to arrest him at this moment. Mm -hmm. And he brought that up. So, like, they were like, the fuck? (laughs) So now we're going to travel... We're going to travel back in time and talk about the victims of this crime. Mm-hmm. These crimes, uh, plural. Like Tara mentioned, the first victim, his name is Edward Smith. He was 14 years old and he was last seen on July 21st, 1979. And his body was discovered just a little bit away from like the neighborhood where he lived in. It was a couple miles. And he was discovered on July 28th. Now, Tara did mention that four days later after Edward was abducted, another young man went missing, and his name was Alfred Evans. And he was literally found, like, when they found Edward's body, he was 150 feet away. That's crazy. It would be awfully coincidental if two people killed two boys who, like, Edward was 14, Edward was 14, Alfred was 13. It would be really weird if they were just dumped in the same location Mm -hmm. by separate killers. They did have similar features, so they definitely looked as if someone had a preference in type. Right. Now, there, there would be some time in between the two until the next one. And the next young boy, who's by the name was Yusuf Bell, Mm. Yusuf was found in a crawl space in an elementary school. Mm -hmm. And he had been last seen on October 21st. And he was found November 8th. Just eight days later, another boy by the name of Milton Harvey would be discovered. And he had been abducted around September 4th. So it was a much longer period of time. So like, I have to think that like, Milton's mom was probably like when they found Yusuf's body. Oh, Yusuf was nine. Milton was 14. You know, Milton's mom must have been like, oh, my God, they found my baby. And then when they Mm -hmm. didn't, like, that must have been so disheartening. Yeah. Then there would be another pause for a few months until March of 1980. And this is when the first female victim would be taken. Her name was 12-year-old Angela Lanier. Mm -hmm. And she went missing on March 4th. And she was found on March 10th. And this is where, like, it gets 
more sad because she had been assaulted, if you know what I mean. She'd been essayed. At this point in time, the community was outraged because there'd been like five children that had been abducted in this area. So they they developed or they organized, I should say, the Committee to Stop Children's Murder. And it was led by Yusuf's mm-hmm. mom, mm-hmm. Camille Bell. So power to that woman for stepping up. Yeah. So that was in April of 1980. Wayne would strike again in May. He took a little boy by the name of Eric Middlebrooks, who was 14 years old. He was discovered behind a bar, and he was found only eight hours after he went missing. So it was very short. Yeah. And then on June 24th, another body was found under a bridge this time, and it was the body of 10-year-old Aaron. Guys, if I say these last names wrong, please forgive me. I don't mean to laugh at that. You guys just know I'm very bad at pronouncing last names. Mm -hmm. I believe it's going to be Weich. He was last seen getting into a Chevy with two African-American men. And then investigators, this one was a little different because investigators couldn't tell if he'd been dumped or if he'd accidentally just fallen off the bridge. Mm. I mean, it was still the 80s. They didn't have a lot of the same technology. Yeah. July 7th, another body would be found of Anthony Carter's. He, again, was one of those victims who was found shortly after he was reported missing. His mother was considered a suspect at the time, but she, you know, obviously later was removed of that suspect, but she did go on the record denying that she'd harmed her child. In July of 1980, Maynard Jackson forms a special task force. It's also to note that Mayor Jackson was the first African-American to be mayor of Atlanta. So this probably hit uh, like home for him. So. They got together, the Atlanta PD and the Georgia Bureau of Investigations got together, and they created the list, which was basically just the list of the victims. Mm-hmm. And they were trying to figure out, like, when were these kids going missing? And like Tara said, like, it was broad daylight. Right. That makes us so much scarier, mm-hmm. honestly. Okay. So now, guys, I'm going to go a little bit faster and just kind of, like, quicken up the timeline mainly so that it's not as sad for me and having to dwell on it. In August of 1980, Clifford Jones would go missing and his body would be found behind a dumpster at a laundromat. Witnesses would claim that he was murdered by the manager of the laundromat, but they never brought charges. In September of 1980, 10-year-old Darren Glass would go missing and he was never found. In October, a citywide curfew was put into place for anyone under the age of 15 had to be off the streets by 11 p.m., but like Tara mentioned, these were like abductions that were happening in the middle of the day. It wasn't like this person was out trolling for like small children at night. Right. And granted, it is that time where people felt really safe and you would hear people talk about like, oh, I even some of my older cousins would talk about like, oh, I used to be able to like ride my bike across town to visit my friends. And my parents were like, you're driving to the store. Okay, call me when you get there type thing, you know? I mean, my parents weren't that bad. They were like, leave me alone. My parents were like, leave me alone. (laughs) In October of that year, two more children would go missing, 12-year-old Charles Stevens. And he was basically found on a grassy hill in plain sight of like a mobile home park. Basically, a witness saw a green blanket 
And they thought it was like a drug dealer, like left something behind. And when they went to investigate, it wasn't. Mm. Also, seven-year-old Latoya Wilson's body was found in October. She had been missing since June of that year. In November, Aaron Jackson would be found. He was also found near a bridge. And he had been taken while going, they believe, going to the store. In that November is when the FBI would get involved with the task force. And then a month later, basically like a month and a day later, 16-year-old Parker Rogers would go missing, and he was discovered a few days later. It was noted that, not Parker, sorry, his name is Patrick, Patrick Rogers. Patrick was also noted to be a singer and a performer and had been talking lately about meeting with a talent scout right before he went missing. Mm. So this is what like they believe makes the connection. Yeah. Now, when we talk about serial killers, we often talk about like how they get in a pattern and then towards the right before they get caught, it's when they kind of like devolve Mm. and they start picking up speed because the urge to kill becomes a little bit too strong for them. Mm -hmm. So in January of 1981, 10-year-old Earl Tyrell would go missing and then 11-year-old Christopher Richardson would also go missing. They would be discovered in different parts of the city, but they both had last been seen at a swimming pool. Also, later in the month of January, Terry Pugh's body would be found in a predominantly white neighborhood in Atlanta, which was kind of a different place than had been before. Mm. Terry was 15. Mm -hmm. In February, 14-year-old Luby Getter was found in a wooded area Luby had been missing since January 3rd. So this particular victim would be used later when Williams would go to appeal because they thought there was connection to the KKK for this particular victim. So this will be one of the cases later that he tries to appeal. In February, 10-year-old Jeffrey Mathis's body is found. He had been missing since March of the year prior. Wow. Also in February, a 12-year-old Patrick Baltazar would be discovered. He had been missing since February 6th. At this point in time, it's gotten huge federal attention because President Reagan actually gave $1.5 million in federal assistance to the task force. Mm -hmm. And now we're going to pick up more speed. 13-year-old Curtis Walker would be discovered in March, as well as 13-year-old Timothy Hill. Also in March, Eddie Lamar Duncan would be found. Eddie was older. He was 21. So he was a little bit kind of out of the age range that had been kind of picked up. We were generally seeing between like younger, more vulnerable ages. Mm -hmm. 21 was a little older. But yeah, the next victim would also be 20-year-old Larry Rogers, who had disappeared in March of 1981, and would be discovered in April. 28-year-old John Porter's body would be discovered in a vacant lot and would be connected to the list later. I believe this had to do forensically because at one point they did start testing these like unsolved murders with different things, and they were finding connections between like fibers from carpets, blankets, dogs, that kind of stuff that connected all of them. Mm-hmm. In April as well, Joseph Jojo Bell was discovered. He had been last seen on March 2nd at a restaurant. 
And then also in April of 1981, 23-year-old Michael McIntosh was discovered as well in the Chattahoochee River. And then 20-year-old Jimmy Paynes would also be discovered in the Chattahoochee, which is where, why the police started looking, because the bodies were kind of like being found there more. Mm-hmm. So because of that, they set up a 30-day surveillance, like Tara mentioned. 17-year-old William Bartlett's body was discovered in May. And then May 22nd, we talked about how they heard the splash, all of that. And then Nathaniel Cater's body would be found. Mm. And then flash forward to June when he would be arrested. Now, the trial went pretty fast. Like, it came up. It started in December of 1981, December 28th. It didn't last very long in December because they had to adjourn for the holidays. Mm -hmm. So they picked back up on January 6th. Oh, okay. I think they probably just, like, set jury and then were like, go home. Have a nice nice New Year's. (laughs) Yeah. District Attorney Lewis Slayton said that the Atlanta killings were like a jigsaw puzzle with a bunch of little pieces, like, fitting together. I mean, like Tara mentioned earlier, Wayne had a fairly, like, normal background. Like, when you start looking at, like, Bundy or Dahmer, where there was, like, this abuse that happened or some sort of psychological trigger that happened to them when they were younger, that they can go, okay, this trauma led to this. Mm -hmm. Wayne didn't seem to have that. So his attorney, Alvin Binder, that was like their whole case was like, how could he be the serial killer? He's this mm-hmm. nice, upstanding citizen, which Tara mentioned earlier. He was not. Right. The trial would last for two months, and the prosecution, like I mentioned earlier, would match a bunch of stuff. Like, I believe it was 19 different sources. So, from like William's house and car. So, like bedspread, bathroom, mats, things like that, towels, mm-hmm. gloves, clothes, carpets, dogs, and like a very specific, like tribal carpet that was in the home matched Mm. that's what they claim really undid wayne like he didn't really have his attorneys didn't really have a case to be like well he didn't do it like here are all the alibis for him Mm -hmm. they didn't have that Mm -hmm. they just had he was a nice guy and like why would he murder right and like one thing that made me sad is he had a german shepherd so you know Mm -hmm. that was like why you have a german shepherd hmm so a microanalyst, Larry Peterson, compared all the fibers and found them on the bodies of Cater and Payne a lot because, remember, he had just moved out around right. that time. Yeah. So it would be specifically from him. Under cross-examination, he did say that there was no absolute scientific meanings to determine whether or the origin of any fiber and that all of the evidence was subjective. But I still think the jury was like, well, you know. His dog hair was on the victims. Yeah. And I know German Shepherd hair. Like, that shit weaves into your... Like, you can barely (laughs) touch my dog, and it would be like, you now have to, like, unweave it out of your clothing. It's like magic. (laughs) I know. Again, his attorneys couldn't provide him alibis, but other witnesses could place him at, like, around the abduction sites. Mm. And on top of that, you're adding in the fact that he was trying to be, like, you know, like Tara said, build the next Jackson 5, he was around children a lot. Yeah. Now, the problem is, I don't know if you guys have been watching the Amber Heard-Johnny Depp case, and, you know, a lot of people are speculating about how, like, she looks at the jury and, like, tries to make them, like, understand her. Well, Wayne did the opposite. He apparently got angry and defensive and combative, and the jury felt 
alienated. Like, they did not resonate with this man at all. And so they were like, Jesus. He described himself as a carefree, happy-go-lucky person and said that I haven't killed anybody or thought about it or plan on thinking about killing anybody. Another thing, when he was being questioned by the officer at three in the morning, or I should say by the officers, like once they like brought him in and stuff, he was like, why would I be up in Cobb County at three in the morning? There's Ku Klux Klan up there. But like he was up there, like they saw him with their eyeballs. Mm -hmm. So it was Officer Jack Mallard who was like talking to him. He said, so if there is Ku Klux Klan up there, why are you up in Cobb County? And I guess he just mumbled some sort of excuse that they couldn't hear. And when they were like, "Uh, can you please explain? He was like, sir, I haven't killed anyone. Hmm. And it's like, that's not why they asked you. Yeah. Because at that point, they didn't know that there was a body. Right. It's also noted that once Williams was apprehended the first time, Mm -hmm. children stopped going missing. (sighs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... On February 27th of 1982, mm-hmm. he was convicted of a double murder, and it was the same day Judge Clarence Cooper imposed two consecutive life sentences, and he was sentenced to life in prison. The jury only deliberated for 12 hours. Y'all know what I think. You got to get your fucking lunch. And <laughs> they, they were like, we could get breakfast, lunch, and dinner, people. <laughs> Take your time. Just kidding. <laughs> In the 90s, Williams filed a habeas corpus petition and requested a retrial, but a Superior Court judge, Hal Craig, denied because they weren't, like, sufficient. In 2004, remember we talked about Getters as a victim would be having involvement with a Ku Klux Klan? Well, this is when he tried again to get a retrial, saying that the police covered up the, their involvement. Mm. And that kind of went on for a couple of years because he filed that in early 2004, but was denied by a federal judge on October 17th, 2006. After that, like, they attribute 22 deaths to him, 18 of those being minors. And he was just up for parole a couple years ago. On November 20th, 2019, he was denied parole and he won't be eligible again until November of 2027. A lot of people want the case reopened because they believe that this was actually a race war and they wanted to look into that. My opinion is if there's sufficient evidence, they should, of course, look into it because the right people should be held accountable for it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, as of right now, it stands that Wayne Williams is the perpetrator of these crimes and that. He will most likely serve life. I mean, when you're talking about that egregious amount of of children, you're not getting out. No. Like, there's no amount of, I found Jesus. There's no amount of, I've changed my ways. Because you can't, I mean, he was 23 when he's arrested in 81. What does that make him now? I'm doing the math. 48. That's not right. It's been 40 years. It'd be six. Yeah. Yeah. 63. I was like, what? 64. I was like, 48. Jesus, Jessica. (laughs) Oh, no, it's been 42 years. That's what it is. So he would be 64. Yeah, he'd be 64. 
Yeah. <laughs> you guys are just like, wow, it just goes dumb. No, it's also like 1130 at night. So guys, <laughs> kind of be nice to me. I was just doing the wrong math problem. That's okay. <laughs> so, I mean, that's still young. You know, we find mm-hmm. all the time where killers are older people. Mm-hmm. You can't let someone like that back into society. No. And if they do the investigation and it turns out that they've had the wrong person, then Atlanta PD is going to have to answer for that. But that's mm-hmm. not something that I am comfortable commenting on currently because i don't have all the facts of that and yeah yeah i hope that i hope the families of the victims have had peace for all of these years yeah because like at the end of the day like there's a reason i wanted to make sure that i i read every victim's name is that a lot of times with cases like this we get really in people get really I'm going to soapbox off of Tara's soapbox for a second. Tara, if you follow her on TikTok, which you should, it's spooky underscore sleuth. She does <laughs> talk about stop romancing serial killers. And a lot of times you can hear people be like, oh, serial killers like Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer. Like, but can you name a single one of their victims? Mm-hmm. Most time they can't. Right. And like, we know these big, famous serial killers, but like, what about the families who, like, at Christmas are still missing that person around their around their table or not accustomed to other religious ceremonies? So, but, like, insert your religious ceremony here or your family ceremony here or tradition or whatever you do that your family gets together at. And just there are families out there where it's like there's a person missing because yeah. some complete and total psychopath thought it was okay to take their life. and. It absolutely makes me sick when people say things like, oh, but they were hot. I mean, Tara gets those kind of comments on her TikTok all the time. And mm-hmm. it makes it literally makes me want to throw up. Like it literally people be like, oh, Richard Ramirez, he's so hot, blah, blah, blah. It's like, one, he was disgusting. <laughs> and two, that just shows that you have bad taste. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to yeah. put this out there. If you're offended by that, good. You, should, you, you need to check yourself. because. <laughs> We are not here to support the romancing of serial killers. No. You want to you look at somebody and have romantic feelings? Paul Holes, people. Genuinely handsome fellow who stops crimes. Just saying. <laughs> Prevents future murders. Romance that. Yeah. Stop romancing creepy-ass dudes who torture and murder people. Mm-hmm. That's my soapbox. And I hope you enjoyed it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I mean it. Probably going to hear it more than once this summer, so buckle up. Oh, I was going to be like, and there will be additional merch that you can go get that talks shit about them, so feel free. Mm -hmm. You come up with little fun stuff, let us know. We will add that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So far, there's there's Ramirez and Bundy so far that we're talking shit on, so yeah. I think Ramirez is my favorite. Yeah. stank breath. (laughs) It's my favorite design. But anyways... what happens when you do a bunch of drugs and then don't brush your teeth (laughs) so with that we're gonna go ahead and sign off for this episode we hope you we hope you learned something Mm -hmm. i don't know i'm trying to figure out a way it's been almost four years and i still haven't figured out a way like on these episodes to be like i hope you enjoyed it because i don't want to be like i hope you enjoyed me talking about a child murderer Mm. but like i hope maybe you learned something thank you for listening (laughs) thank you for listening (laughs) 
The obvious one. Jesus, Jessica. <laughs> okay. With that, we're going to say bye. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.